Well done. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Uh, and at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Uh, and at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And, and what that means is that the Christian life, uh, from start to finish, is about God's kindness. We don't become Christians uh, by grace and then uh, grow as Christians by law. Actually, the whole thing is about grace. It's about God's love. And so we're going to hear that again and again when you come to RUF. We're going to talk a lot about Jesus and a lot about grace. That's what RUF is all about. Uh, in each semester, we go through a sermon series. And this semester, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of Jesus' greatest hits. Uh, it's his sermon that was most popular. It's what he's most known for. Uh, it's found in Matthew 5 through 7. And we're calling this series The Good Life. Uh, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's Jesus telling us what it looks like to follow him in a broken world. It's Jesus telling us what it looks like to live the good life. Uh, and this week we're taking a look at some of the most popular and difficult teaching of Jesus. Uh, even as Mary was reading this passage, I'm sure that you've heard these sorts of things. There's all sorts of sayings that have kind of entered into our popular dialect from this passage in particular. And Jesus, in this passage, is teaching us how we're supposed to relate to our enemies. And an enemy is just kind of at a basic level someone who will do us harm, someone who wants to harm us, or someone that we love. And Jesus, uh, as he is teaching this, uh, kind of his assumption here is rooted in uh, an identity that he gives to his followers. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will refer to God as your father. He says this over 16 times uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says it a lot in the book of Matthew as well. And this would have been a kind of revolutionary understanding for God to be Father. Uh, when people had, had an idea of God, they would have thought of him kind of as like a, a stern judge or someone who means business. And Jesus comes on the scene and he refers to God as Father. Uh, and so Jesus uses this, like I said, multiple times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's doing there is he's reminding his followers who they are. He's giving them an identity before he tells them to do anything. That's how it works in the Christian life. Uh, you are told who you are before you're told what to do. And what you do always flows out of who you are. And so Jesus here is assuming uh, that his followers are children of God. That they are adopted into the family of God and they know God as father. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just a, a work of theology that RUF subscribes to, uh, refers to adoption, this thing that we're talking about a little bit here. It says, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. J.I. Packer, who is a really great theologian, uh, says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And so this is what Jesus assumes about his audience. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. And in our passage this evening, Jesus reminds us that this status as God's children, uh, it instructs us in how we relate to our enemies. It has implications for how we relate to the world around us, and especially our enemies. So kind of the main idea, as we're looking at this passage tonight, I sum it up this way. 
Uh, because Jesus has made us children of God, we must love like Jesus. Because Jesus has made us children of God, we must love like Jesus. Uh, but what does it look like to love like Jesus? So just two points I want to suggest to you tonight. Uh, loving like Jesus looks like laying down our rights and loving our enemies. So laying down our rights and loving our enemies. Uh, before we get started, I want to pause and pray, and then we can jump right in. So let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we can come together and consider your word. Uh, this passage that we're looking at tonight uh, may be really familiar to a lot of us. And often when we kind of hear words again and again, it's, it's easy to lose any sense of what they actually mean. So Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, new ears to hear. Uh, that you would help us to understand what it is that you are saying to us uh, tonight in this word. Uh, Lord, I, I just pray that you by your spirit would open our eyes. Uh, help us to see who Jesus is. Um, help us to know who we're supposed to be in response. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, uh, because Jesus has made us children of God, we must lay down our rights. That's kind of the first thing we're looking at here. So if you would look with me to verse 38, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, you've probably heard this before. Um, this is kind of a general principle of law. Uh, it's even quoted by Kendrick Lamar in an album, so pretty popular. I mean, I think that, that means you've made it when you're quoted by Kendrick Lamar. Uh, someone should tell Moses, because he wrote that in Exodus 21. Um, but what, what that is, is it is a legal principle from the Old Testament, like I said, from Exodus chapter 21. Uh, and to us, maybe when you hear that, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it might sound a little bit barbaric on some level. Like you're imagining someone like knocks your tooth out and then, you know, somebody holds them and you knock their tooth out. Uh, it, it sounds barbaric, maybe a little bit vengeful. Um, but what it is, uh, it's actually just a principle of proportional punishment. Uh, this is a thing that would have been revolutionary in the ancient world. Because the tendency, you know this, when someone wrongs you, is to wrong them in return. Uh, and a lot of times, if someone does something like knocking a tooth out, we're not going to respond by just knocking one tooth out. Like, we're going to deck them completely. And so what this does, it kind of establishes a floor and a ceiling for justice. Uh, so a floor, it protects the victim from, uh, from someone just, like, doing something and not being punished. But it also uh, protects the person who did the crime, that they're not going to be killed for doing something minor. So this is a legal principle that uh, is kind of applied all throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus actually uses this kind of same logic in other places in the Bible. But if you remember correctly, if you've been with us this, thus far this semester, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of combating a different way of understanding the scriptures, a way that shrinks them down, a way that can kind of turn them into a checklist. And so Jesus is, in his day, uh, this principle was being used to justify vindictive practices in personal relationships. So this thing that was designed to be a legal principle, to kind of be a bedrock of a civilization, was being used in kind of one-to-one -one disagreements and being used to justify things like revenge. And so Jesus redirects this, starting in verse 39. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Essentially what he's saying there is, do not automatically apply a legal principle, which is good, 
to your personal relationships. It's not meant to work there. And he kind of gives five examples in the verses that follow of what he means by this. And these are some of the most quotable things in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Bible in general. Uh, In verse 39, Jesus encourages us when someone uh, smacks you to turn the other cheek. Uh, And Jesus is, it's pretty specific. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Uh, In Jesus' day, as in ours, most people were right-handed. And so for a right-handed person to slap you on the right cheek, it was a backhanded slap. Uh, And in that day, as in ours, that's a very offensive thing to do to someone. And so the natural response, if someone smacks you, is to smack them back. Uh, But Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Jesus is saying, when you're offended, when someone uh, does something that is insulting to you, don't return offense. Instead, turn the other cheek. Jesus is saying to diffuse the situation. And then he says a a similar thing in verse 40. He's asking us to imagine a situation where someone is uh, suing you. Um, Someone who is suing you for your tunic. Uh, In ancient Israel, a normal person would have about two items of clothing. They would have a tunic, which was kind of like a long t-shirt made of a durable material. And they would probably have one or two of these that they would wear. And then they would wear a coat outside of it. And the coat would have been uh, not only just something that they wear for style, it would have been something that would have covered them at night. They would use it as a pillow. These are like kind of essential things to have. And Jesus says, if a person sues you for your tunic, uh, what you're not supposed to do is respond in kind. Jesus says, rather than responding by accusing them back or fighting back, don't return accusation. Jesus says, let the person have your cloak as well. See, Jesus is again uh, kind of commanding us to diffuse the tension. And then in verse 41, uh, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this one might be a little bit foreign to us. All the other ones are kind of similar things that we can understand Uh, But in Jesus' day, uh, the the Jewish people were kind of under the control of these Roman overlords. Uh, And whenever the Roman overlords would have, like, some sort of battle that they were going to, it was completely legal for them to go up to a random Jewish person who's on their way to work and say, hey, I want you to carry my armor a mile. And they couldn't say no. Like, it would be a threat to your life if you said no. And Jesus is saying, in that situation, uh, don't have a bad attitude about it. In fact, go even further than they ask you to. Jesus is saying uh, that you need to be willing to be inconvenienced. You might be well within your rights to be mad about this. Jesus is saying, I want you to continue on. I want you to be inconvenienced. And then he carries this on in verse 42. He says, to give to the one who begs. Do not refuse the one who borrows. And so a general principle, kind of what holds all of these together, is Jesus is saying following him means being willing to lay down your rights. In relationships, it means willing, being willing to lay down your rights. Uh, turning the other cheek is not what comes natural to us when someone insults us. Uh, allowing someone to have even more than they ask of you when, when they accuse you is not something that comes natural to us. Going above and beyond with someone who's asking us something really inconvenient for us is not something that comes natural. You see, we would be well within our rights in any of these situations to respond the way that the person who is attacking us did. But Jesus is saying that our ruling principle in relationships needs to be love, not uh, proportionality. 
not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is basically saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to take an L. Like, you just need to be willing to take an L for the good of other people. That's what it's going to take. I think one of the best examples I can think of this uh, comes in the, the novel, book, play, Les Mis. Uh, kind of offers a beautiful example of what this sort of um, willingness to, to lose for the good of other people uh, so if you haven't uh, interacted with Les Mis, I've just seen the play, or the, uh, the musical actually with Hugh Jackman, so I'm not exactly an expert, so if I get things wrong, sorry about you. Um, but it tells the story of this man named Jean Valjean. He spends 19 years in prison. He originally went for just kind of like a petty crime, uh, but he tried to escape prison, and he ended up staying much longer than, original, uh, than he originally intended. And so he's finally released from prison, and as he, after he's released, he becomes kind of this pariah who can't get a job anywhere and is treated poorly. Uh, so life has been very cruel to this man. Uh, and he finally is taken in by a bishop, a kinder old bishop, um, who is just a man who served as a priest in the church. And so he's taken in and given like food and shelter and you know dry clothes and all of that. And so you would expect in this moment that this is going to be something that kind of changes Jean Valjean. Someone's finally kind to him after everyone's been so mean. Uh, but what he does instead is he sees that this bishop has a whole bunch of silver. And if he just took this silver, then he would be set for life. And so that's what he does. He steals the priest's silver and leaves before he can even get up. And then predictably, he's caught. He's caught by the police, and they recognize the stuff, and they think that it belongs to the bishop. So they bring Jean Valjean back to the bishop, uh, essentially saying, I want you to confirm that this man stole this silver from you. And whenever he comes back, uh, the priest responds to him this way. He says, uh, here you are. I'm glad to see you. How is this? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Uh, what is he doing here? He is laying down his rights. He would have been well within his right to insist on Jean Valjean going back to prison because he stole from him. But instead, what he does is he gives him these candlesticks that would have been very valuable. And if you've seen uh, the play, you know that this was life-changing. He altered the course of Jean Valjean's life. He laid down his rights. He was willing to take a loss for the good of someone else. And this is, I mean, beautiful. This story sticks with us for a reason. But I think the question should be asked, is Jesus calling us to something that is just unsustainable here? Is Jesus calling us to be perpetual doormats? Is Jesus calling us to be enablers? Like, for me, does it look like for me to follow this, does it look like just being an enabler to all the evil and unhealthy people around me by just letting them trample all over me all the time? I think just to, to respond to that, I want to say first off very clearly, uh, Jesus is not requiring us to sidestep justice. Jesus upholds justice. And I know many of you have been sinned against and hurt in ways that have legal ramifications and Jesus is not saying it's wrong to pursue those things. That's not what he's saying. It is not your duty as a Christian to enable abuse and injustice. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
But what Jesus is saying, he is calling us to be creative disruptors of the normal cycle of evil and proportionality. Jesus is calling us to respond in a way that's different from what people would expect when they insult us. Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly a man who knew what it was to respond differently to what people say about you. And he said this, he said, there is something about love that builds up and is creative, but there's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. You see, the calling of the Christian is to stop the tearing down and destructive tendencies that we see and to lay down our rights. And in laying down our rights and valuing people over arguments and valuing people over our rights, we're introducing this creative disruption into the system. And we're giving people the opportunity to have a completely different trajectory in their lives. So this all sounds good and, and really big, but what might this look like for us practically? And I'm just thinking about, in particular, your life as students. Uh, I think, uh, practically, it might look like if you have a group project, say, and someone is not pulling their weight. It might look like, at the very least, not freaking out at that person. But instead being understanding. And asking the question, huh, like why aren't they pulling their weight? I wonder if there's something they need to talk about. Or I wonder if I could help them out a little bit. Or it might look like picking up the slack for a roommate who kind of didn't pull their weight on the dishes this week. It also might look like being generous with your time. If there's someone in your classes who uh, is behind and doesn't understand the concepts and you get it really well, it might look like taking the time to explain that to someone. And in all of these situations, you're, you're laying down your rights. You don't have to do any of those things. What you're doing is you are creatively disrupting what people expect. In each of these situations, you're laying down your rights, and you're introducing love into your relationships. So, because Jesus has made us children of God, we are called to lay down our rights. But secondly, uh, because Jesus has made us children of God, we are called to love our enemies. If you would look with me to verse 43. Uh, Jesus here is quoting kind of in the, the formula that he has been. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible, like that's part of that sounds good. But the other part of it's like a huge fail. Uh, Jesus says, you shall love your enemy or you shall, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of that, loving your neighbor, is a partial quote from Leviticus chapter 19, uh, where Jesus famously quotes from later on when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it says in the original context. And then this kind of corollary here, and hate your enemy, that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's nowhere. <laughs> like, you just can't find it. And so apparently this is just kind of a corruption of biblical teaching uh, that was popular in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is kind of combating this. And to show even more that this is a corruption of biblical teaching, Leviticus 19, where the first part is from, later on in that chapter, it says that you're supposed to treat the foreigner among you the same as you would treat the native born. This, this rule of love applies to all of these people. And yet, it was a popular teaching uh, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I think we can see why this is appealing, because it's easy to love people who are like us. And it's desperately hard to love people who aren't like us. This is why things like racism and nationalism are just common. 
It happens all the time because it's so much easier to love people like us. So how does Jesus correct this thinking? He says in verse 40, 44, But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, so for Jesus' original audience, when they heard enemy, um, it wouldn't be nebulous. Uh, for us, maybe when we hear enemy, it's like, I'm not really even sure who that's referring to. For them, it would have been pretty easy. It would have been Rome. Rome, the people who were occupying their land. Uh, the people who were putting all of these restrictions on them. And it would have been people like tax collectors who would have been native-born Jews who are working for Rome to kind of extort all of their friends. And in the face of this sort of treatment, it's tempting to hate these sort of people. It's tempting to respond the same way that they treat you, to overthrow them with violence. And this was a big tendency in Jesus' day. There was a group of people called the Zealots that just wanted to absolutely destroy Rome and their rebellions again and again. But Jesus here says that you are to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And I wonder, when, when you hear enemy, who is that for you? Uh, I don't want to assume that that's nebulous for everybody. For some of us, it might be. But for others of us, maybe you think of someone who just thinks completely different than you. Or someone who is kind of like a political rival. Uh, still, others of us will be thinking about people in our families. People who have harmed us. People who have said things to us that they just can't take back. They've said things to us that have, in, in a lot of ways, like murdered our very souls. That's legitimately an enemy every bit as much as Rome was for the original audience here. But Jesus says that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. What, what that means is that when others intend harm, we are to intend them good. When others hurl insults at us, we are to ask God to hurl blessings at them. That's what it means to pray for someone who persecutes you. Again, these are the exact opposite of what you would expect. In a lot of ways, the natural tendency, it, I mean, it's hate your enemy and persecute back the people who persecute you. Jesus is calling us to do the exact opposite of what we would do. And I think the question kind of naturally arises, how in the world are we supposed to do this? Or maybe even why are we supposed to do this? And Jesus gives us an answer in verse 45. He says that in loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, we are sons of our Father who is in heaven. In loving our enemies, we're simply doing what God the Father does. He goes on to say he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, this goes against our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to love those who love us. Our natural tendency is to greet those who greet us. But God, in, in stark contrast to this, God is merciful. God is merciful. He, he loves perfectly, without regard for how lovely we are. He's merciful to the bad and the good. He's merciful to the kind and the toxic. He's merciful to the annoying and the cool. I think this is what Jesus means when he says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying this, this perfect love loves without regard for how good the object of his love is. This is what perfect love is. It, it loves someone with, without regard for how lovely they are. And what does this look like? I think this looks like uh, someone like Reverend Anthony Thompson, who lost his wife, Myra, 
uh, in the shooting in Charleston in 2015. Uh, he attended Dylan Roof, uh, the person who murdered his wife. He attended his trial. He wasn't even planning to attend. But then he gets up, he looks Dylan Roof in the eye, and he says, Son, I forgive you. Can you imagine that? Looking someone who has taken so much from you in the eye and offering forgiveness. See, this is the perfect love that Jesus is referring to here. The love that can look an enemy in the eye, that can look someone in the eye who has taken everything from you and say, I forgive you. But how can we do this? How can we love like this? How can we respond to hate with love? How can we respond to persecution with prayer? Uh, the theologian Sinclair Ferguson uh, says this. He says, the mark of perfection in the Christian is just this. His love is not determined by the loveliness or attractiveness he finds in its object. His love is not conditional upon his being loved first. His love is not directed only towards those whose love he can rely on in return. No, his love is controlled by the knowledge that when he was God's enemy and a sinner, the Father first loved him. If he is to show the Father's love, then he will go and do likewise. You see, loving our enemies, it starts with the realization that we were God's enemies. It starts with the realization that we were God's enemies. And, and when you hear me say that, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that you need to think of yourself as garbage. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, admitting that you're an enemy of God, it doesn't mean that there aren't good things about you. It doesn't mean that you don't live an admirable life in some ways. Uh, that's not what being a sinner means. That's not what being an enemy of God means. It means that in your core, the whole of you is completely turned away from God. That even the good things are used to serve other purposes. See, it means that we, like our first parents, we, we think we know better than God. Uh, the Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. It tells us in our natural state we lived in darkness, far off from God, under condemnation, in captivity, and in a state of spiritual death. But see, because of Jesus, those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. See, because of Jesus, those who were far off have been brought near. Because of Jesus, uh, the condemnation that we deserve is replaced with justification, being declared righteous before God. The captivity that we know is substituted with freedom. The death that we expected is replaced by resurrection life. See, if we, if we have trouble understanding how someone could love like Jesus does, uh, it might be that we're out of touch with this reality. It might be that we're out of touch with the reality that we were once God's enemies. The more in touch we are with this story, the more we're going to be able to embody this perfect love. And I think this means that if you're here tonight and you recognize a struggle to love your enemies, which I think should be all of us, it's not easy. Uh, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is not to beat yourself into submission or try to fool yourself into loving them. The solution is to look at the cross and see what Jesus did for you. To understand the lengths that he was willing to go to turn you from enemy to friend. You see, when you look at the cross, you see the lengths that Jesus would go to turn you from an enemy to a child of God. And that melts your heart. 
So let's bring all this together here. So we've seen that uh, because we're children of God, through the work of Jesus, we've seen that we must lay down our rights and we must love our enemies. And ultimately, in laying down our rights and loving our enemies, we're loving the way that Jesus loved. You see, Jesus had every right to hold on to what is his. He had every right to insist on not living for us, not dying for us, not being raised for us. He had every right to bring the hammer of God's judgment down upon us. But the good news of the gospel is that the hammer of God's judgment was brought down on him. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto or hoarded for himself, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the greatest creative disruption ever to take place. It is expecting judgment and being met with love. It is expecting death and being met with resurrection life. You see, Jesus laid down his rights for our sake. And Jesus also had every right to hate his enemies. Unlike us, uh, Jesus was completely in the right when he was hated. Anytime someone insulted him, they were objectively wrong. And the same can't be said of us. He was perfect, without sin, and yet he loved his enemies. Like his Father in heaven, he loved perfectly. And he loves us not because we can give him something in return. I just want to repeat that. Jesus loves us not because we can give him something in return, but because he loves us. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible says this. It says that the love of Jesus is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And the more that we understand this great love that Jesus has for us, the more that we're going to be able to love the way that he did. The more that we're going to be able to lay down our rights, to not insist on what is ours in relationships. And the more that we understand who Jesus is and how he loves us, the more that we're going to be able to love those who are different from us. Amen. Well.